Welcome back from the breakout groups. And as mentioned, the big question that we are thinking about over this lunchtime is this, um, life after death. Is it a make-believe comfort blanket or is it a verifiable fact? Um, common wisdom says that you need to start any talk with a hook. But I actually don't think we need to. We need a hook today if we are considering the issue of death. Um, it's not a topic, if you think about it, that needs persuading. Um, one year has passed and we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. 100,000, more than 100,000 people have died from COVID. And perhaps you know one or two individuals who personally make up that part of this unfortunate national statistic. And if it's not COVID, uh, most of us, if not all of us, would be really keenly aware of one or two close family members for whom death is not a distant prospect. Uh, my dad, along with many of your aged parents, uh, are going through some form of illness, some more critical than others. And for some of you on this call, uh, this topic of death, well, it simply isn't one just for discussion, well, but it's hugely personal. Uh, perhaps recently you have been confronted by your own mortality. And so the question, uh, the crucial question is this, is there life after death? Can we really know? And as we kind of explore this question, I want to acknowledge that there are going to be different approaches to this question. As mentioned, for some of you, this question of death is something very close to your heart right now. And I don't know the circumstances you're in. And yeah, I'm sorry for the difficult situation that you may be in. And because the prospect of death is, is painful, a life after death, well, it gives you hope. But at the same time, we all recognize that wanting something to be true, well, it doesn't make it true. Or to put it bluntly, a make-believe comfort blanket, well, it's still make-believe. And so we need more than just wanting it to be true. Alternatively, you might be joining us and you might be a skeptic today. Uh, you may have the view that it's better not to have life after death. Well, because believing in life after death, well, it prevents full enjoyment of life now. Now, some of you might remember a bus campaign ran by atheists in 2008 and 9, and this is what was put up on the, on, on the buses. And that's what it says. Uh, there's probably no God, or you could paraphrase, no life after death. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life now. Uh, do you see the logic of that? Uh, you don't want life after death to be true because eternal consequences, well, it prevents full enjoyment of life now. But you see, the same logic applies. Uh, not wanting it to be true doesn't make it not true. Well, if the comfort blanket is indeed there, uh, believing that it doesn't exist doesn't make it not exist. Uh, we need more than just wanting it not to be true. And so the question we're going to explore today, and there'll be a chance for questions after this, um, is this, is there life after death? And of course, you might say that this is an impossible question to answer. Um, and so let me try to illustrate this, this question. I want you to imagine that all of us on this call, we are in a white room, okay? No doors, no windows, a sealed up box. 
And everything is sealed up except for this hole in the corner of the room. It's a one-way hole. And when an individual dies, he or she disappears down that hole, never to be seen again. Uh, what is outside the room? Uh, is there life after going through that hole? And on one end of the room, uh, you see the philosophers and they are sitting there in their armchairs, smoking their pipes, hypothesizing, conjecturing, speculating. Some of them say yes, and some of them say no. But the question is, how do they know? And in the other corner of the room, uh, you see the religious people. Uh, they are in their community groups. They are analyzing their religious texts. They are discussing, uh, meditating, contemplating. And most would say there's life after death. But how do they know? And lastly, you see in the middle of the room, uh, you see the scientists. Uh, they've gotten samples from the wall and they've been analyzing the compounds that make up the wall. See, they're researching, analyzing, theorizing. But how do they know? Um, how do they know what is outside the room? Um, I'm really sorry for the silly illustration, but I hope you see the point. Uh, it's impossible to know what is outside the room if all you have to go by is inside the room. See, the, the, the philosophers, the, the religious, the scientists, they all have the same problem. See, no one knows what's on the outside. And all of us on this call, uh, we are all caught in that mix. See, people are disappearing every day uh, through COVID, through illnesses, through death. But who can claim to really know? See, it's an impossible question. And yet, there's someone who claims to really know. Uh, for the next 10 minutes or so, we'll be looking at John's eyewitness account of a man called Jesus, a man who John spent about three years of his life with. And it's in this eyewitness account here, you might be able to see it, there you go. Um, you might say that it's a religious text, and perhaps uh, depending on how you define what a religious text is. But in the first instance, uh, this eyewitness account is a historical document. Um, it's, a, it's a record for public distribution and discourse about events that happened around 30 AD. And not only is it historical, it's also a public document. Uh, one not written in the cave about someone's own mythical experience. But if you read through the eyewitness account, there are place names or individuals uh, in this eyewitness account in order for people to look up those places or individuals who have been named. And this eyewitness account by John, well, it records first an event that happened approximately 1,988 years ago in Bethany near Jerusalem, roughly around this time of the year in February or March. And so um, I want you to imagine a scene. Uh, there's a strong Mediterranean sun that's beating down on your skin. Uh, maybe a bit hard to imagine that now, I know. But you also hear cries, loud cries in the air. And not cries of joy, but cries of tears. What has happened is that a man in his mid-twenties, a man who has, is a life full of potential, um, has died. Uh, his name well, is Lazarus. And the cries that you hear in the air, uh, those cries are his sisters, Mary and Martha. And we would think that, well, age 25 is much too early for a young man to die. 
and so did Mary Martha. Uh, they were distraught at losing their brother so early on. And so we ask, uh, well, was it a rare cancer or was it an unfortunate incident? Well, we don't know. And as we follow the crowds, uh, we hear their cries getting louder and louder. Uh, but there's one more character who arrives at the scene, and it's a man called Jesus, back then recognized by the crowd to be someone who can perform miracles. Uh, let me put up John's account for you and let me read it to you. Now, when Jesus came, uh, he found that Lazarus had already been a tomb for four days. And here, John, he indicates that Lazarus definitely died. Uh, but notice also John recording for us the geographical location. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection in, on the last day. Your brother will rise again. Um, as we overhear the conversation, it appears on the surface to be your typical exchange of comforting words at any funeral. Now you, might, you might say as well, it sounds a little trite. Uh, I found on the website uh, titled 10 Totally Inappropriate Things to Say at a Funeral. Uh, here's number eight. Did he have life insurance? Uh, don't say that. Uh, here's number four. His blessing, uh, sorry, his death was a blessing in disguise. I mean, it doesn't feel like a blessing to me. And number one, uh, he is in a better place now. Well, how do you know? And so you might add Jesus' words to the list. Uh, your brother will rise again. Well, thanks, but, but how do you know Jesus? I mean, is Jesus simply being trite? Well, but it's almost as if Jesus hears the, the questions and our, our, our thoughts on what he's saying, and he replies to Martha in the next line. And this is what he says to her. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And as you hear those words, you might, you might think, what a strange statement. I mean, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the resurrection? And the life. And let me suggest what I think he means. See, the resurrection, uh, it refers to a final day event where the dead will be brought back to life. And when Jesus says that I am the resurrection, he is personifying a future event. See, the resurrection is not only an event that will happen in the future, but it's all about a person. But what's the implication of what Jesus is saying here? And here's, the, here's what I suggest. Well, if you can personify a future event, you don't need to wait to the end of time to see what happens. You can verify it in the present. We can determine whether that future event will really happen because it brings the resurrection into the present. 
I think that's what Jesus seems to mean. Um, I am the resurrection. He is personifying a future day event. You might say, hey, that's a curious statement, but what proof does Jesus have to back it up? And what John does for us, he records two public historical events um, as evidence. And firstly, um, he claims that Jesus can give resurrection life. And Jesus gave resurrection life in front of the crowd um, who were there. Now, let me read for you again John's account of what happened. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And then he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands, his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Uh, actually, the scenes, I think is a little comical here. I mean, a dead man, he's stumbling out his tomb in linen cloths, probably struggling to unwrap himself. Uh, was he hopping as his legs were bound? Did he trip over as he walked out? Uh, who knows? But see, it's not only comical, it's also shocking. I mean, think back to the last funeral you attended. Imagine the man standing up and says, come out, and the dead body rising from the tomb. I mean, it's a shocking scene. So you would have scarcely believed what you were seeing. And so John, he recognizes that what's happening here in his story, it's out of the ordinary. So he includes place names and individuals for you to speak to them in order to verify these claims. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, now he means that he can give life from the dead. But there's a second, uh, there's another public historical event that's also significant, if not more. Um, all historians, historians note that the man called Jesus was crucified by the Romans. And here's what his disciples found three days later. Uh, both of them, that's Peter and John, they were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and re reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I'm not sure you noticed the other description of the linen cloths. And this time the linen cloths, they were not wrapped around a man, but they were folded up neatly in the corner. And so if a thief stole the body, well, it must have been someone who had serious OCD. But of course it wasn't a thief uh, because Jesus, well, he subsequently appeared to many of his disciples, including John himself, who recorded this historical event. See, Jesus, he died, but he also came back to life, unlike Lazarus, who stayed dead. And so it's these two public events that is backing up Jesus' claim, that I am the resurrection and the life. Well, firstly, it means that he can give resurrection life. And secondly, it means that he himself 
has experienced resurrection life. And so the implication of what Jesus is saying here is that we can verify the resurrection by verifying the person of Jesus. Uh, let me try to illustrate this again. I'm sorry for the silly illustration, but we are back in the white room. And remember, who knows what is outside the room? And in one corner, you have the philosophers in their armchairs, right? And they are smoking their pipes. They are conjecturing and speculating. And in the other corner, you have the religious people in their community groups. They are meditating, discussing, contemplating. And lastly, in the middle of the room, you have the scientists. They're analyzing the compounds from the wall. They are researching, theorizing. And every once in a while, someone disappears down that one-way hole, never to be seen again. How does anyone know what's on the outside? See, it's all speculation. But all of a sudden, you, you hear a loud crack. And you see parts of the wall crumbling and light starts to pour in from the outside. And to your surprise, someone from the outside steps in and says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see at that moment, right? All speculation disappears. Uh, the philosophers, they need to put down their pipes and the religious people need to put down their books and the scientists need to put down their equipments and listen to the man who comes from the outside to tell them what happens after death. It's only the one who comes back from the dead who has authority to definitively tell us what is outside the room. So do you see the point uh, what Jesus is saying here? Now, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, it is shifting the discussion from speculation about the future to himself. And it is as if he is saying, verify me. See, it's a, it's a shift from hearsay to history or from prophecy to a person or from a future day event to a present day reality. And it's Jesus um, is the only one to have made this claim throughout history. Uh, only Jesus has claimed to die and come back to life and stay alive. And not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Stephen Hawking. So is there life after death? You know, some religions, they say yes, but provide no evidence for it. Uh, secularism would say no, but mostly because they don't want it to be so. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not sure what you're thinking right now. Uh, you might still be skeptical about what has been said and have questions. And that's fine. Uh, we have time for a Q&A after this uh, for you to ask your questions. But at the very least, I hope you understand the logic of the claim that Jesus is making. See, the discussion has shifted to whether Jesus did or did not rise from the dead. The issue um, is no longer whether you want it to be true or you want it not to be true. See, there are numerous people, some people on both sides of the camp. Uh, people who want it to be true and people who want it not to be true. And both sides, well, they can't know for sure. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, well, he has the final say, not the philosophers, nor the scientists. And so if you really want to know the answer to life um, after death, the big question that you need to consider today is whether Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. 
And one of the beauties of this being an eyewitness, um, it being a historical public document, is that it is verifiable. It's not a story that's conjured up in the cave. It's a real event in a context, in a geographical location, in a sociological setting. And so here are three suggestions for you to explore a bit further. Uh, the simplest really is this. Uh, you can Google John's Gospel or John's Eyewitness. And, um, and on the handout, there's a link to the website. Uh, you can print out the first chapter, uh, take a pencil and to take something that you agree with or, or cross out something that you disagree with or put a question mark on something you may not understand. And after that, ring up your colleague who invited you for this event and ask them your questions. Uh, there's nothing better than examining the source material for yourself and making your own mind up. Another thing that you can consider finding out more, there's, there are two books here. Uh, let me put it on the screen for you again. Uh, firstly, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb is written by Val Grief. Um, he's a lawyer. He's presenting the cases for you, for you to make up your mind on whether Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. The other is Is Jesus History by John Dixon. Uh, he's examining whether one can know what happened in the past and the historical claims surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, thirdly, there's something that we organize here at Common Garden Talks. Is this discussion group called Meet Jesus. Uh, we go to another eyewitness account of Jesus, and it's a guided discussion on, on whether um, on, on the story of Jesus and whether he did or did not rise from the dead. Uh, that's something for you to consider, and you can ping me in the chat if you want to find out more. Well, but whatever you do, can I appeal to you not to ignore uh, the claim of what Jesus said? I know it's lunchtime and the temptation is to go back to your work laptops and go back to your emails and to continue to do it as if life and death did not matter. But one day, uh, hopefully later rather than sooner, it will matter. See, the claim that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, is literally a claim, an issue of life and death. And it's worth examining the claim a little more. So let me encourage you, don't let your personal biasness or business cause you to believe that there is no life after death. Or perhaps as um, you might personally be experiencing the pain of death today, uh, perhaps someone close to you or perhaps yourself. And maybe the encouragement of what you've been hearing today that there is indeed life after death. Well, not because you want it to be true, but Jesus proved it by coming back to life. Uh, personally, I find this a hugely encouraging fact that is grounded in historical events, and not just because I find death painful. But more than that, we saw with Lazarus, Jesus can give resurrection life. Uh, he has the ability and the desire to give life. But also recognize that, well, it isn't simply a comfort blanket something to keep you warm when you're cold and to be thrown off when you don't need it anymore. See, when Jesus, after Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he said to Martha these words, do you believe this? And Martha replied to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And so the basis on which one receives resurrection life from Jesus is by believing in him that he is Lord, the King, the Christ, the one who is in charge. 
Because believing in Jesus, obtaining life after death, isn't meant to function like a comfort blanket or an insurance policy. See, it's all about a person, as someone whom you have a relationship with, recognizing Jesus as your Lord. And there's no life after death outside of that relationship. And perhaps you're someone who might have heard much about what Jesus has done, and you're very sympathetic to what he said, but personally have never made a decision to have the relationship with him. Likewise, can I encourage you to speak to your colleague who invited you for, for this event and to share your thoughts? Or if you don't like your colleague very much, um, you're more than welcome to drop me a private message and um, follow up with any questions you might have. So our question for today, life after death, is it a make-believe comfort blanket or is it a verifiable fact? And I suppose the answer is, well, sort of neither. Well, it's ultimately about a person. Well, thanks for listening during lunch break. I um, hope it's given you some food for thought. And we'll have uh, some time now for questions. And the, the way to do so is put your questions in the chat. Uh, you can send it to me or to Brian Wong. And um, yeah, he'll forward the questions through.